I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Luther. Pets. I'm calling you today to discuss our friendship. Okay. Is this going to be an uncomfortable conversation? Or? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it could get pretty bad pretty quick. It's just like you're breaking up with me, but it's not me, it's you? or No. Oh, okay. Um, how would you describe our, the roles in our friendship? How would I describe the roles in our fr- our roles with each other? You're killing me right now, dude. I'm trying to understand exactly what, what we're getting at. Sorry. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> like would people even think we're friends if they saw us from a distance talking to one another oh probably not we're basically like an old married couple <laughs> you, you like to push my buttons I like to push your buttons but at the end of the day we enjoy doing a lot of the same things together how do I push your buttons you are familiar enough with the things that would annoy me, and you poke and prod those things. What do I do to annoy you? Flits. <laughs> <laughs> Though, I mean, I had to be on, like dead honest about it. The only time I get annoyed with you really is like when I want you to go do something mm. and you're being lazy or hard-headed or I don't even know what it is. You know what I'm saying. I understand. Like, I'll be like, dude, we should go do this. And you're like, mm, mm. And I feel like we've got a good track record and I don't understand why you don't say yes to all my ideas. And that annoys me, to be frank. Well, you know, I, I think a fair amount of the reason at this point in my life is because I have, like you, a wife and two kids. Yeah, but I got a but, wife and two uh, kids. You got this, You have the same excuses I do. And okay, this is one of the things that annoys me most about you. <laughs> what you're doing right now. <laughs> I love you, Luther. I love you too, Pets. What is this for? It's for the intro to the Dirtbag Diaries. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, we're doing a story today about two friends that are a little bit like you and me. You know, one's kind of uh, slightly over positive, I would say. And the other is a little bit more conservative. And they make a bet. And it's a pretty awesome bet. Like, kind of an epic one. And What is their bet? I don't know. You're going to have to listen. You do know. You can tell me. <laughs> do we need to make a bet like this? Well, probably. Today we have a story from Francesca Fenzi about two best friends, Matt Muchna and Peter Jornal, another set of complete opposites. Ask Matt and Peter about their favorite story 
the one that really describes their friendship, and they'll tell you. It all started with a bet. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. The origin of the bet started in Oahu three years ago. Me and Greasy Pete Jernell were laying on the beach, not knowing where we were going to sleep that night, having a, some philosophical conversation. Peter was stressed about our lack of plans, basically, for our summer, whereas I was more carefree, enjoying the waves and the beach and being in Hawaii. This is Matt. I had drifted off daydreaming, and uh, I thought to myself, Matt, you're in your physical prime. In the next three years, you should climb some tall mountains. And Matt leans over and looks at me and goes, you know, someday I want to climb one of the tallest peaks in the world. And this is Peter. Peter laughs and then goes, wait, like, Nepal, you're going to the Himalayas? I was like, no, 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 like, one of the continental highest peaks. That's an important difference. Aside from Mount Everest, the seven continental peaks aren't technically the tallest in the world. But many of them are over 18,000 feet. And in some cases, like the Vincent Massif on Antarctica, they're pretty hard to get to. Which made Peter look at this less like a plan and more like a joke. He's staring off at the beach and he's like, no, 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 I'm serious. Like, I want to do this. Like, I I think I can do it. And I don't think it would be that hard. And I started laughing. I was like, dude, I think it'll be way harder than you think it would be. And then Matt brings up the fact that he could probably do it for about $300. And instantly caught myself and realized that most plane tickets are at least triple that. And I look at the guy and I say, you know, Matt, I'll give you 10 times that. And if you can do it for 10 times that amount, I will pay for the entire trip. That was the bet. They laid out the rules. The $3,000 had to include everything. Gear, food, clothes, travel. And Matt had to do it in less than three years. If he did, Peter would pay him back. Penny for penny. And we shook on it. And I was so happy because I knew I'd be climbing a mountain in the next three years. And Peter was so happy because he thought I just made a fool of myself and he was king of his little world. For Matt and Peter, the bet went deeper than egging your buddy on to do something ridiculous. For the two of them, it was a philosophical question. I always thought myself as a, a realist, and Matt was the idealist. And so it was like a big issue between idealists and realists. Then that's, uh, that's kind of been the nature of our relationship is he's always the one saying daydreaming, as I like to put it. And uh, I'm the one who uh, tries to reel it back in into reality. Peter, I think that that day in Hawaii on the beach in 2011 was also fueled by our previous summer We had gone on a three-week trip to Europe together where I convinced him that all we needed was round-trip tickets to London and we could could just figure it out from there. Both of us wanted to go to London and we wanted to go to Stockholm. Those are the two places. And I was talking to Matt about that. I was like, well, we could find a cheap plane ticket in London. 
And Matt's like, nah, dude, we just go down to the dock, find a boat that's sailing to Sweden, and we'll just work for him and we'll go to Sweden. I didn't realize that London doesn't have a dock. It's actually in the middle of England. So we were stranded in London without anywhere to go and no money because I listened to Matt. Pete lost a lot of faith in my idealism when we were sleeping in a tunnel to avoid the rain in London. 100 miles from the airport, our flight was in 12 hours and we had $8 between the two of us. And so I think this next summer in Hawaii, he was pretty fired up and gonna stand up for his viewpoint because he, he had a good point, you know? I mean, if we planned a little bit, it could have been a lot, a lot more comfortable, but maybe not as many, many good memories. So that kind of gives you a background on Matt's, um, maybe his optimism, his childlike optimism. That gives you definitely an understanding on why this bet was, uh, was such a big deal for us at the time. And from a realist standpoint, Peter's side of the bet was looking good. When I made this bet, I think I had maybe two or three pairs of cutoff pants that were now shorts or jorts, uh, a pair of sandals, and maybe six or seven pretty nice Hawaiian shirts. Uh, and that was it. He didn't own a winter coat, not even a pair of close-toed shoes, no climbing gear. And at the time they shook hands in Hawaii, Matt had about $70 total. Matt was fit. He'd grown up hiking the Grand Canyon, and he'd even run from one rim of the canyon to the other by the time he made the bet. But the largest mountain he'd ever climbed was Humphreys Peak in Arizona, barely over 12,000 feet. To Matt, these were just minor details. And actually... So was the money. He lays back on the sand, wraps both hands around his head, looks up at the sky like, this is going to be easy. Top of the world for me. I was in Hawaii. I had 70 whole dollars. That's like three or four uh, gourmet meals at Red Lobster. So I'm feeling great. I'm feeling so good. I was probably equally as, uh, as victorious laying there on the beach, being like, man, I'm so confident my bet I don't even need to take the other side because I'm not going to lose. For two and a half years, the bet just sort of stagnated. Though, Matt says he did do a little research. I definitely thought about it that year a lot in 2011, researching different mountains to climb, and it turns out Peter's right. A lot of the mountains are very technical and you need a lot of mountaineering experience and gear, climbing gear, uh, some of which is definitely not under $3,000. Uh, but there are a couple uh, mountains that are a little less technical. The least technical is Mount Elbrus in Russia. That isn't strictly true. At 18,510 feet, Mount Elbrus is more than a casual hike. Climbing the summit doesn't require much in the way of technical gear, but a climbing harness and crampons would be helpful. And the base camp itself is located above 8,000 feet. From there, he would have to climb 10,000 vertical feet to reach the summit. But to Matt, it seemed feasible somehow. Travel to Eastern Europe was cheap, an important consideration when it came to his $3,000 limit. And just months before the bet's three-year deadline, Matt got an invitation that permanently fixed his sights on Mount Elbrus. He had a friend who was getting married in eastern Ukraine, less than a day's journey from the mountain. So Matt began to get excited. From Ukraine, he could hop the border into Russia and climb Mount Elbrus. Still, it wasn't going to be simple. As an American, Russia's a tough place to visit at the best at times. 
and spring of 2014 was not the best of times. The political climate in Ukraine was pretty volatile. Russia had established a presence in Crimea and eastern Ukraine, exactly where Matt was headed for the wedding. The U.S. State Department even issued a warning against travel to that region. Plus, Matt would have to get a visa for travel into Russia, then cross a border that was currently under dispute between the two countries. But I went. I wanted to try my darndest to climb Mount Elbrus. If I was going to go to Ukraine, I I was going to try it. And so I was looking up different guiding companies, and darn it, Pete was right. Most of the guiding companies were between like $2,500 to $6,500, and they were a couple weeks long, and you needed specific gear that I just didn't have. And I was like, well, there's no way I could do it for under $3,000. I wish there was a way I could just buy like a hiker's permit or runner's permit and just try to do it in one or two days. Then a stroke of luck seemed to act in Matt's favor. There was a high-altitude race on Mount Elbrus the week after his friend's wedding. And the route of the race went right to the summit. And I was just thinking, this is my shot. This is my shot. So I emailed the race and asked if I could have entry to the race. And I gave myself some pretty stout credentials just so that they wouldn't overlook my application. And they granted me entry, actually gave me free entry, and told me they'd take care of my housing. And we're just really excited to have an American at the race. Were the credentials true? Uh, yeah, uh, some. A lot of them were exaggerated for sure but i i had to go i I had to do this race it was my only chance the one thing i didn't account for was weather and just the mountain whether or not the mountain would let me climb it and the day i showed up Two guys had gotten lost uh, attempting the summit. They unfortunately weren't found for a couple days, and they both were found dead. It wasn't until he was on the mountain that Matt says the magnitude and the danger of the task really hit him. Besides, he had a race to run. The race officials had granted him free entry, but he still had to prove he had the chops. After just one day at camp, Matt found himself running a vertical kilometer to qualify for the race. He finished the qualifier with time to spare, but he felt fatigued and a little nervous that someone might recognize he was an imposter. Then, on the day of the race, his plan hit a major setback. Uh, The day of the race, there was really bad fog at 17,000 feet, so they turned everyone back down and and made a different finish to the race, um, and so didn't get to summit that day. Matt finished the race in the top 20, a pretty impressive feat for somebody who exaggerated his running credentials. But he hadn't reached the summit and he only had two days before he had to return to Ukraine and his flight home. As the storm wore on, Matt began to worry that he'd come all this way for nothing. The day after the race, terrible fog, really bad snowstorm. But I said, you know what, like, I got nothing else going on. I have one day left here. I'm going to, I'm going to prepare like I'm going to summit tomorrow. Just that's what I got to do. Like, why not? I have nothing else to do. So Matt rallied some fellow racers who'd stayed at base camp also hoping for a summit push, and they prepared for a final attempt. And uh, I woke up at like 3 or 3.30 and looked outside and I saw stars. So I ran out of the room and looked and for the first time I could see the summit. I could see it clear as day just staring at me in the face. And I realized like today is my chance. Like this is it, my last day. I'm going to do it today. So I went back in the the room, woke all the other guys up, said we got to go. Matt assembled his gear, which was pretty meager by mountaineering standards. A pair of micro spikes, some trail running shoes, and two plastic bags as gaiters, plus a down coat that he'd borrowed from Peter. 
without telling his friend what it would be used for. And so I just started jamming up. I started climbing, climbing. Uh, There's really thick ice and some pretty sketchy areas. And the whole time, these like clouds are starting to build at the summit and then dissipated. And they started to build up and then they dissipated. And we're just climbing, you know, as, as fast as we can, uh, which is pretty slow at, at high altitudes. But I didn't sit down once. I didn't stop to eat. I was just going, going. And I made the saddle in about five hours. But as any climber can attest, there's quite a difference between eight and 18,000 feet. And as Matt approached the summit, he felt every inch of that extra elevation. And I'm walking, walking, just utterly fatigued. Like, my eyes are shutting and my body's just going to sleep while I'm climbing. The lack of oxygen is just putting me to sleep. And uh, I'll never, never forget this. I'm within two steps of the summit. It's literally eye level. I'm standing there, leaning on my poles, just trying to catch my breath. And I look up and I stare at the summit. And I sent a signal to my legs. I said, all right, let's move. Let's get to the summit. And they said, no. So I took a moment to think and reflect on all that had gotten me to that point. And uh, I believe the words that emerged were, suck it, Pete. And I found energy from my inner soul and took two huge steps, made the summit. And from there, I just had magic energy of uh, excitement. I sacrificed a brown sugar Pop-Tart on the top and crumpled it up and blew it into the wind, thanking Mother Elbrus for all that she had done and for granting me passage to the top. And uh, my legs were starting to cool me down really quick and the storm was still brewing all around me. And so I pulled out my phone because I knew I had to get a photo, otherwise Pete wouldn't believe me. Ate a chocolate bar and then just started heading straight down as these clouds were building. And we made it back into base camp right as fog consumed the mountain. Even after he'd returned to the safety of base camp, Matt says it took a while for his new reality to sink in. I remember showering and just warming up back in the room after my climb and and just getting moments of just utter joy of like, yes, like I did it. It it all came together. Like, no way that just happened. I would look at my photos and be like, it happened. Yeah, it did happen. And I remember uh, just feeling really thankful to the mountain and also to how many things had had worked in my favor that whole trip and realizing that the mountain opened up for those six hours, the last, the very last day that I was there in Russia uh, was just unbelievable. And I felt like idealists all over the world won a major battle that day over all realists and just believing that whatever, whatever you think is possible is possible if you have the passion and the desire to do it. After his shower, Matt called Pete from base camp to break the news. Oh, he was livid. He was freaking out. Uh, wanted to talk numbers. Wanted to to more proof that I had climbed the mountain. He just couldn't wrap his mind around it, that I had done it. I was actually with my family. Everyone was looking at me. I was like, Matt did it. Like, no flipping way. Like, he climbed the stinking mountain. It's so cool. But... I'm kind of upset about the 3000 bucks because I don't actually have that right now. He also told me that he understands and he'll pay me back, but he's not going to pay me back cash like, uh, like a good human should. I made a bet. He stuck to his half. I have to give him his money. Am I going to hand him a case full of, or a case, a small envelope with $3,000 in it? Probably not. Because, I mean, you can't just follow up a bet with just handing an envelope. You got to make it worthwhile. 
Peter says he plans to get creative with his payment. He wants to put the three grand into a future trip for Matt, rewarding his friend with another adventure instead of an envelope. And so I think uh, the bet will keep going, and I think we'll keep we'll keep challenging each other with it, and uh, it's fun. Is there anything that you hope that he got out of this bet? Oh, yeah. I hope that he realizes that you can accomplish what you want to put your mind to, and, and it does take some effort. It does take some planning, which kudos to Pete. You have to plan a little bit, but at the same time, if you want to accomplish something, you can, and... Uh, yeah, I hope that he sees that and he's learned that and maybe, maybe has gained an ounce of idealistic blood uh, from watching me accomplish this. You know, 3000 bucks, whatever, I, I felt like I learned a lot through the bet. And uh, I think I actually came out a better person. Maybe. I don't know. To be determined. But I, I hope it just keeps going. Like, I hope, uh, I hope in the future there's more opportunities like this to, like, you know, have some fun and like challenge each other in a, a productive way, I guess. I hope this isn't our last bet. We'll see. This show is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who are out to change how our clothes are made. All of their bikinis and board shorts are now fair trade certified, which means better pay and better working conditions for factory workers. As of February 2017, workers have earned an additional $800,000 through the program. Shop for swimwear and learn more at patagonia.com slash fair trade. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. Elegant and easy-to-use roof racks, hitch racks, and accessories to get your bike to the trailhead in style. Check out their full lineup at kuatracks.com. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support comes from the Richmond-based Virginia craft brewery Vossen Brewing, whose goal is to make unconventional ales and celebrate those who spark positive change in their communities. Vossen, hail the journey. Support for the Diaries comes from you. Get your very own Dirtbag Diaries theme song ringtone when you pledge your support to the show. Just go to our website and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who's donated already. We've heard that people are just, like, spontaneously rocking out whenever their phone rings, which is awesome. Music today from Warren Thomas Fenzi, MC Cola, Publish the Quest, Havenlanar, Alemi, Kai Angle, and Bradley Carter. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and Francesca Fenzi, an independent audio producer known for her fun facts and an ancient Volvo sedan. Find links to more of her work on our website. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitzco Hall, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.